Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up, it's Jim Garlow of San Diego Skyline Church and the commentary, The Garlow Perspective, visiting the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at the recent National Religious Broadcasters Convention to discuss his trip to Israel that had occurred prior to NRB. Then from Family Research Council, you'll be hearing some comments from NRB by Tony Perkins relative to his views on President Trump and the policies that he and his administration have implemented. Then from NRB, you'll hear a portion of the amazing testimony of Victor Marks, who was estranged from his father, who came back into Victor's life and pointed him to Christ. Victor is ministered in the Middle East and has a heart for those suffering with trauma. Also, it's Bible study leader and pastor's wife, Linya Heitzig from Calvary Chapel, Albuquerque, who offers a look at how the light of Christ can shine in and through our lives. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, more conversation material from the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at NRB. Daryl Bach, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and Mitch Glazer of Chosen People Ministries shared perspective relative to a new organization called the Alliance for the Peace of Jerusalem, which is connected to a survey showing a declining trend of support for Israel among younger evangelicals. Plus, she is a county clerk in Kentucky who was jailed because she would not authorize marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Kim Davis visited the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center to share some elements of her story, which she tells about in a new book. Also, it's pastor and author Michael Anthony of God Factor, who has written a book challenging Christians to develop and grow in courage when facing the culture. And finally, Corey Salkert has been involved in ministering to hospice babies. She has developed a compassionate, insightful mindset toward children who are dying. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Jim Garlow serves as senior pastor of Skyline Church in San Diego. He's heard on the daily radio commentary, The Garlow Perspective. He's also the author of a book called Well-Versed, Biblical Answers to Today's Tough Issues. He visited with me at the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at the 2018 National Religious Broadcasters Convention. We discussed a variety of issues, including Israel, where he had just visited. Inside now from Jim Garlow. Yeah, I think the last time I saw you on on social media, you were in Israel, and last you week. and a, a faith delegation had the opportunity yes. to meet with Benjamin Netanyahu and David Friedman, who is the ambassador to to, his, to Israel, Israel from the U.S. from the United States. So, uh-huh. so tell me why why did you join together with other Christian leaders to actually go to Israel? Well, part of the uh, we've been part of what's called the Trump Faith Advisory Board, which was used during the the election. Now they have a different name. Uh, this emerging, I think, it's going to be called Faith Initiative Leaders or something like that. We weren't sent by the president. We weren't representing the U.S. government at all. We went as individuals. We all happened to serve in that capacity, but we went as individuals. And and this particular trip was very very intriguing uh, because we're in, coming in the in the you know days right after the announcement of the moving of the embassy. So we learned a lot. The, the most the most intriguing thing to me. Uh, on the trip was our time with the ambassador to uh, f- from the U.S. to Israel, David Friedman, who you already spoke of, when he described the scenario that was going on in the room when they made the decision. And we, we think back to May the 14th, 1948, when Harry Truman, President Harry Truman at that time, was told not to embrace Israel. And all of his advisors, including the Secretary of State, said, do not, do not, do not. But he did it anyway, and he embraced Israel at 6.11 p.m. 
But he says, I support the nation of Israel. And he said, I, later he would say, I am Cyrus. Well, it was kind of a moment like that in that President Trump had three people supporting him, but all the rest did not. The three people supporting him were David Friedman, the ambassador to Israel, Nikki Haley, ambassador of the United Nations, and not surprisingly, Vice President Mike Pence. Those three were saying, yes, we need to move the embassy. Everybody else was saying no. And Donald Trump did something we don't expect from politicians. He honored his commitment. That's a shocker to us. He is one after another honoring the things he said he was going to do. He's actually doing them. And we're not used to that to elected officials, particularly presidents. And so he said he was going to do it. And the instincts, he has some very good instincts on issues. And so he, he did it. They said the whole world was going to blow up. It didn't. And then right after that, Guatemala, back in 70 years ago, in 1948, right after Harry Truman affirmed the state of Israel, Guatemala immediately did. 70 years later, President Jimmy Morales of Guatemala affirmed the move of the embassy and announced they were going to move the embassy as well. He's come under horrible pressure uh, for that, regretfully, from the United Nations and from our own State Department. But he, he immediately said he was going to move the embassy. So 70 years later, Guatemala, and we, we were, by the way, the many people who serve on the Trump Faith Advisory Board were also in Guatemala, uh, again, as individuals. We weren't representing the president or sent by the president, but we were there and met with them to affirm their decision uh, that they met. But David Friedman's inside views on what was happening in the room when President Trump said, we're going to move it was very intriguing. That was worth the trip to hear that. <laughs> My goodness. Well, and again, when you have someone that is making decisions, this is a politician. Well, I say politician. This is not a politician. <laughs> uh, you know, he's in politics, but he comes from a different world than than Washington. And it, and it has been a bit of a learning curve for Mr. Trump kind of getting involved in the job. Absolutely. I, I, I do not know anybody who could withstand the level of pressure he faces every day. That, that is absolutely staggering. We, we, we recognize, we don't defend the flaw. All of us have flaws. He has flaws as well. He says things he shouldn't, and so, so do all of us. He tweets things he probably shouldn't, and so do some of us. And, and the, but the fact is, he has been remarkably consistent in policies where he's walked the line on pro-life. Well, we heard Mike Pence saying yesterday, the most pro-life president in the history. When you, when you think of since Roe v. Wade, we wouldn't have expected that from Donald Trump. We wouldn't, mm. we, 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 he, we wouldn't think he'd be more pro-life, viscerally so, than Ronald Reagan. But he actually has in terms of things he's done and legislation and, and things he's pressed through. So we, we got to thank God that we've got a man who really honors the, his word on the things he ran on, and he ran on some very, very good things. Jim Garlow here on The Intersection. Learn more by visiting the website, jimgarlow.com. Next on this edition of The Intersection, it's Tony Perkins, president of the Family Research Council, who has heard on Washington Watch. He talked with me about a variety of topics, including the importance of Christians being involved in the political process and an evaluation of the Trump administration's performance. From that NRB conversation, this is Tony Perkins. It's an important thing. It's, yeah. a, good, it's a good question, Bob. I think, what does it mean to be an evangelical? I do think you're right. I think uh, there are those that hold uh, evangelicals in, in high regard, some not so high regard. I, I think the term has somewhat become elastic. 
uh, in that, uh, and I, th I think we saw this in, in some, we've seen this recently in some elections that the term evangelical has almost been uh, used like silly putty. It's been stretched <laughs> and such. Uh, what I see evangelicalism is, and what we contend for is the ability for those who believe the Bible as the authoritative Word of God to live according to that Bible, not just worship according to the teaching of Scripture, but as our, forefound, our forefathers thought, the, the Protestants, uh, the, what's referred to as the Protestant work ethic, comes from an understanding that everything we do is worship, which is what Scripture says. Whatever you do, whether it's eat or drink, do all is unto the Lord. And so as an evangelical in this country, what we're contending for and what we advocate for is the ability to live our lives according to our faith. That means to teach our children, to raise our children according to our faith, to educate according to our faith, to be able to engage in entertainment according to our faith, and yes, to engage in the political process and to have a voice at the table of shaping the policies of our country from a biblical perspective. Right, and we should not be excluded from that. We should not uh, be excluded, and we should not apologize for it. There, 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 in fact, we have more of a standing, when you look historically at this country as Christians, as Bible-believing yeah. evangelicals, we have more standing to have a seat at the table uh, than, than anyone else. Now, we are, the, the, what was given the, the, the rise of diversity in this country is the tolerance of Christians. That is the teaching of Scripture. We love everyone. But that doesn't mean that we surrender our rights to live according to our faith simply because we welcome everyone to be a part. We hope they come to an understanding of the truth, but even if they don't, we still love them. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking, in fact, several years ago, Tony Evans was talking with me here at NRB about the, the passage of Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 2, about praying for our leaders and the reason being so that we might live a peaceful and quiet yes. life. And I was thinking about the role of government and how some don't see the the role of government in really the, the biblical perspective. And, you know, when we do see the government overreaching and there becomes a penalization of people of faith, just because we want to live our lives according to the dictates of our conscience, according to our faith, that really, you know, that gives us the, the opportunity when we see that government may be overreaching in that area, we should ideally push back against oh, that. Without, without question, I think that actually is what happened in uh, the fall of 2016. I think after eight years of these uh, constant assaults on our faith, whether it be the HHS mandate, which forced uh, companies and insurance policies to or all citizens to, to have a medical pro, uh, uh, insurance plan that included uh, abortifacients and contraception, um, all of these issues, you look at the redefinition of marriage, you look at what's happened in our nation's military, this was an assault on religious freedom. And I think voters, and particularly evangelicals who understood this, uh, George Barna calls a, a subset of those evangelicals the sage cons, mm -hmm. the, uh, uh, spirit, uh, the spiritually uh, active, governmentally engaged conservatives, uh, they've voted in record number. We had 91% uh, of them turned out with 94% of them voting for Donald Trump and Mike Pence. They got it. They knew what was at stake. Um, we've got a midterm election coming up this fall, and this whole agenda is at stake. Now, I know a lot of people are, are not happy with Congress. They haven't followed through on a lot of the promises. 
Donald Trump has pushed through more policies than any president in my lifetime that are in line with our views. But the, the, the challenge is if Nancy Pelosi takes control of the House of Representatives, which only requires 24 seats to switch from Republican to Democrat for her to do that, uh, Donald Trump will be impeached. Now, I, I doubt very seriously they would ever be able to remove him from office because they have no reason to impeach him uh, other than political. But what will happen is the agenda will cease. The conservative policies that he's pushing through that protect our faith, that give us the right to raise our families, those will be in jeopardy. And uh, that's what's at stake in this midterm election. So Christians need to be voting. Tony Perkins here on The Intersection. The FRC website is frc.org. Next up on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Victor Marks, founder of All Things Possible Ministries. He visited the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at NRB to discuss elements of his life story and ministry. He discussed how he came to Christ through the outreach of his previously estranged father. He also discussed the ministry that he does in the Middle East, including reaching out to children there and in the U.S. From that recent conversation, this is Victor Marks. What was the life of Victor Marks like when your biological dad actually contacted you? Crazy as it may sound, I was starting to be conformed into his image, not even knowing him. I started doing drugs. You know, I was chasing women, all that type of stuff. And, uh, and I had a dark side to me. I'd get involved in martial arts, and I was, I was quick to fight. And uh, I'm not saying I was good, but, you know, I'd go for it. And then when he, you know, I was really empty at that time. And then when he, inter- when he humbled himself and came back into my life, and he had to really worry about him now being rejected or having an angry son, uh, he, he took the risk and he kept pressing in and that changed my life. And you mentioned that you were involved in martial arts. Of course, you were in the Marine Corps. Yep. You actually were, as I understand it, you were quite good in, in your, <laughs> in your activity in that sense. Well, I did, I did apply myself and, you know, I was at one point pretty driven, but I, I still hold the world record for the fastest gun disarm and people can see it on YouTube or whatnot. Uh, our videos that we've put out in culmination, they estimate over 100 million views around the world even. So it's, uh, God has still used that in my life, uh, even though I, you know, I taught professionally for years and got out of one full-time ministry. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's, um, it was my God until I found the, my true God. Hmm. And so what did God do in your heart? Your, your father actually reached out, witnessed to you. How did you respond, and how did God work in that regard? Well, I'll say, you know, it, it, God overcame me with love nothing else not condemnation and certainly not by force because i was i was a pretty hard charging marine and, and a hard young man but it was his love i'd never really felt love in june 22nd 1986 i mean that was my day to uh to get my life right with god and all i did was respond to his love to me mm. so how did life change for you it, drastically yeah. it, it was drastic i had a desire for his word for the first time um and I wanted to follow him, not as a Christian, but I wanted to follow him as a disciple. Somebody gave me a book called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The Cost of Discipleship. It was the first Christian book I read, and I would think I was ruined from that point on. Mm. So at, at some point, you sensed that God was calling you to do your own 
ministry, all things possible yep. ministries. Well, you know, he invested in me with some godly men, Greg Glory, being mm-hmm. the chief one, who discipled me for a couple of years, actually, out of his home, which was, you know, um, that's how messed up I was, I tell people. But, uh, you know, God eventually led us to, uh, I was on staff with uh, Dr. James Dobson, and then I moved into our own ministry of reaching troubled, abused youth, and it's exploded and we've been doing it for 15 years now. So we have an office and a home in Iraq. We reach kids who've been affected by ISIS. We've reached about 25,000. And this dog with me right here is a Belgian Malinois. People can see her, uh, you know, on our social media pages. Uh, she was with me when we were face-to-face with ISIS on a number of occasions, uh, helping children who had been orphaned or parents you know, just killed or actually helping facilitate rescues with the Iraqi army, the uh, coalition forces, but we'd be the one that take the children into our home. So as a result of all that, just this past summer, we're looking to build an orphanage there mm. uh, in Iraq, outside of Kurdistan, for people who know that area, uh, you know, between Karagosh and Mosul. And God's afforded me the opportunity here very soon to meet with the prime minister of Iraq. And can I tell you something that most people don't understand? Sure. They want Christians back. Oh, man, that's great. Yeah. They, yeah. they So say, many fled Iraq. I mean, oh, hundreds of thousands. Yeah. And what they've said is to Iraq, Christians are to Iraq as the scent is to a flower. And we must have Christians come back. So I just pray all those, you know, solid prayer warriors down in Alabama will pray for us. And they can even sign up for our prayer list or follow us in, in uh, God does want to restore the church, the persecuted church in Iraq, and we're thankful wow. and humbled he's going to allow us to be part of that. Victor Marks here on The Intersection. You can learn more by going to the website, victormarksmarx.com. This is The Intersection Podcast with Linya Heitzig. She is the executive director of She Ministries at Calvary Albuquerque, the church where her husband serves as senior pastor. She shared with me about the Fresh Life Bible studies in general, and specifically one called Live Brilliantly. Here now from that conversation, this is Linya Heitzig. Well, in 1 John verse 5, it says, This is the message that we have received from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And I think that we live in such a dark world, and I don't just mean the sin and liberals and TV and Hollywood. There is darkness in each one of our lives. I work with women, and sometimes the darkness is overwhelming. You know, last week we were offering a call for ladies to move forward in their faith, and one woman came forward whose daughter had been murdered, and she was stuck. Another woman came forward whose husband had beaten her the night before, So there is plenty of darkness right in your own home. And, uh, you know, to be honest, Bob, I'm a person who suffers from depression. So I have known the darkness of depression and fear and anxiety. And so more than anything, I want to live brilliantly. And it says if we walk in the light, if he is in the light, then we will have fellowship from one another and our sins will be cleansed. And so I think living brilliantly is learning how to walk in the light. And isn't that attractive to get out of the darkness? Um, You know, for me, that might be the chilling fog and clouds of depression that creep into my life. For somebody else, it it, it could be 
uh, anger or alcohol or other things, but there is a way out. And uh, Jesus says you can walk out. And you might have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but you can walk out and walk into the light. And uh, he will cleanse you. He will heal you and help you live brilliantly. What have you found and what do you teach are some ways in which God's light can actually be applied to some of these these different manifestations of darkness in someone's life? Well, for me, with depression, and I probably think this is true with just about any area, I think that happy people are helpful people. And you could sum up all of God's commands into loving God and loving others. And I think that if you're in his word, you're loving him, but then he can command you, get off your knees, get out of the closet, and then love somebody else. So in my darkest, darkest times of uh, depression, God will frequently whisper in my ear, Lenya, if you want to feel good, do good. And uh, so I find that for me, my mental pain stems from self-obsession. When I kind of ruminate on my past failures, my present problems, or my future possibilities, when I'm stuck in that I, me, mine, and when I get stuck in that kind of thinking, thinking, I call it, I often will ask God to help me identify a person or a people group that I could help tangibly, and I mean that day. So I have run to the grocery store, going up and down the aisles to find food, to donate to the local, you know, food bank. And when I'm doing that, I'll find that my eyes are lifted off of my problems, off of myself, and onto him and others. And and then I find myself feeling better, you know, being relieved. So um, I think that, uh, you know, James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. And I think John kind of, you know, pushes for that same thing. He says in uh, John uh, 3, 16, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in needs and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? I would tell your audience, love. Love God Mm. more, love others more. And that is, well, counterintuitive because it seems to me just human nature would say that, you know, there's a tendency to isolate when someone is up against darkness in his or her life. Yeah, and that's the worst thing we can do. You know, uh, you think about your barbecue in the backyard or if you go out camping and you have a fire. If you want to keep that fire going, you keep the coals together. If you separate one of those little coals and put it off to the side, it's going to dampen and dim and fade out. And so really, those times that you're feeling weak, you should be close to the fire, close to Christ, close to the light of the world. And, uh, you know, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But he transitioned, you know, the Gospel of John is a companion to 1 John. So when Jesus proclaimed, I'm the light of the world, he eventually said, you are the light of the world. Mm. So he ignited us. He wants us to be ignited. And when we bring our torches together, so to speak, um, we, we shine more brightly. Linya Heitzig here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website, sheabq.org. This is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. Find out more by going to the website, meetinghouseonline.info. 
You'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on the podcast. You can also subscribe to the intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. The Intersection podcast is also available through the Faith Radio app. You can learn more through the website at faithradio.org. Also on the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, you can get connected to video content, including content from the recent NRB convention in Nashville. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Mitch Glazer is president of Chosen People Ministries. Daryl Bach is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. They talked with me at NRB this year to discuss the formation of the Alliance for the Peace of Jerusalem. It was formed in correlation with a survey commissioned by Chosen People Ministries and author Joel Rosenberg, conducted by Lifeway Research and indicating evangelical attitudes toward Israel. From that conversation, here are Daryl Bach and Mitch Glazer. Joel Rosenberg, who's a well-known author, uh, and Mitch commissioned a survey through Lifeway. That's the Southern Baptist uh, polling service, I guess would be one way to describe them. Uh, Sounds good to me. And and Scott McConnell and his team uh, put together a survey uh, involving 2,002 evangelicals across the country and surveyed all kinds of views related to Israel, uh, related to the Messianic movement, that kind of thing. And we discovered all kinds of interesting stuff. And in the midst of that, uh, decided to launch the Alliance, really to help educate people. There was a huge group of particularly 35 and unders who didn't have a strong opinion one way or another about how Israel fits into scripture, what the scripture teaches about the plan and program of God and Israel's role in it. Uh, what they thought about Jewish people in general. And we just said, man, have one-third of the next generation have no position at all, have no awareness at all, really is not a good thing. So we formed the alliance to talk uh, about biblically what is going on in Scripture with Israel, how it fits into the overall program of God, the plan of salvation, uh, you know, the home for the, for the coming of the Messiah, that kind of thing, the future that Israel has. And, uh, and to try and help particularly educate everyone and young people about that and also to respond to a certain degree to certain Christians who simply argue the church has completely replaced Israel in the program of God. Well, you know, I can quote Daryl Bach, <laughs> who has often said that the inclusion of the Gentiles does not demand the exclusion of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that really, that's very important. That's good. So yeah. the, the work of the Alliance for the Peace of Jerusalem, as you have taken this survey data, what do you see as some of the, the arms of that effort that the two of you are involved in? I, I believe that we're going to uh, already uh, have a lot of uh, input into where the church is headed through the statement that we issued that's on our website. There are 13 affirmations and 13 denials. And 13 is a good number for Jewish people because the great Maimonides uh, came up with the 13 principles of faith. And so 13 is good for us. 12 is also good, but 13 is also good. And so uh, one of the most important things about the affirmations and denials is the fact that it sets a tone for the conversation. 
And so while being totally supportive of Israel, believing uh, that the event in 1948, if it was, you know, we'll never know if it was really the fulfillment of prophecy, in a sense, until Jesus sits on his throne, but, yes. but it sure looks like it. Yeah. And, and I always tell people I could give you, you know, 6.8 million reasons why I think it is. And Ezekiel 36 said the Jewish people will come back in unbelief. So that's certainly the case in Israel today. But then God moves by his spirit while the Jewish people are in Israel and restores them spiritually, then physically, and uh, the Messiah comes and reigns on the throne that da Daryl was talking about. So I, I do believe that we are seeing prophecy unfolding uh, right now. And we want to affirm that, but we also want to affirm uh, our Palestinian friends and uh, we want them to uh, know that God loves them, that Jesus died for them, and that uh, not every evangelical uh, d doesn't like them. On the other hand, we've also taken a very strong stand in one of our statements against affirming terrorism and suicide bombers. Mitch Glazer and Daryl Bach here on The Intersection. You can find out more at allianceforthepeaceofjerusalem.com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Kim Davis, the county clerk in Kentucky who declined to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples in the aftermath of the Obergefell ruling. In our conversation, she discussed some elements of her experience. She's released a book entitled Under God's Authority, The Kim Davis Story. Here now from that conversation, this is Kim Davis. It was a shock. I, I never would have dreamt in a, just in my whole lifetime that I would ever end up being in jail. And, and especially with my, my past, I didn't go in jail. To, didn't go to jail then, but go to jail as a Christian was a was a real shock. Um, I just, you know, I think God's timing is perfect every time. And um, you know, if, if me going to jail is what it took to stir people and to wake people up and to, um, you know, just make people realize that it's not just the bakers and the florists and the, and the wedding planners, that it could be someone like me who issues the license or it could be a magistrate who performs a marriage ceremony. Um, so, you know, and I think people are realizing that it's not just if it happens, but when it happens to them, that they're going to need to be prepared and ready because they could end up being in the same situation that I was. So what was the rationale, without getting it too deeply, because I know our time is limited, but this is, this is a, a, a situation, when you think about a judge placing you in jail for standing by your faith convictions, that's very troubling. Sure it is. He, he told me that I could take my faith off and leave it in my vehicle before I stepped in my door. And I said, sir, with all due respect, you can't take off something that is ingrained in your soul. It's not like a, a, a coat that I can take off. And, and you were not really, when the, when the court action began, you weren't really trying to, you were just asking for an accommodation. That's exactly basically. right. Basically. What, what, what were you wanting to, in this situation, what were you wanting to, to uh, I guess, to accomplish or to see happen? I simply wanted my name and my authority removed from that license. I didn't want to be any part of it, didn't want to have any, um, you know, any kind of connection to it. And what eventually, for those that may, they may have followed the story to a point, what a, was there some sort of accommodation that was Granted, I, I believe that the judge may have gotten involved, but the the, the the real accommodation for you and others in your same position didn't come until Matt Bevin was elected oh, governor. Yes, I, I have nothing but good to say about our governor. He is truly a man of God who allows his moral compass to lead and guide him. He um, 
campaigned heavily that he was standing behind me and and uh, and my choices, and that as governor he would make his first executive order to remove the names of the clerk's signature and their names off of the marriage license, which he did. And then the um, Senate and our legislators passed a bill that actually codified that and and changed the whole um, the whole uh, marriage license form and, and stuff that removed everything, made it a state issue then. Right. Why were you released from jail? <laughs> I, I'm really not for sure because I was I was in for the long haul. Right. Um, right. I had planned to stay until the legislators met and um, and didn't have any problem, you know, doing that. Um, I'm not sure. I was sentenced to jail with no release date. He told me that when I decided that I could uh, follow his order and carry out his order, that he would release me. So when, on Tuesday, when I, I was getting ready, I was going to meet Mike Huckabee. I didn't know that he was having a rally outside for me. So, But I thought he was just coming to visit. So when um, the jailer came and said he had an order to release me, and of course I hooped and hollered, and, and uh, I said, can I see that? And it said, yeah. he said, yeah. And uh, there was a, a condition on there that I would not interfere with my deputies issuing marriage license. And I, I handed it back to him, and I said, I'll just stay. And uh, he said, I can't do that, Miss Davis. He said, I have an order to release you. And uh, so I made a national statement, you know, at the first day back to work that I wasn't going to be issuing. There would be no license issued with my authority or anything like that. But I, I simply gave myself an accommodation that the license were going to be issued pursuant to a federal court order. And then I put my court order and David Bunning's name, the judge. And... Um, you know, that was, that was all I was asking for was a very simple and, and meager accommodation. Kim Davis here on The Intersection. You can learn more through the Liberty Council website at lc.org. Well, Michael Anthony is founder and president of God Factor, lead pastor of Grace Fellowship Church in York, Pennsylvania, and author of a book entitled A Call for Courage, Living with Power, Truth, and Love in an Age of Intolerance and Fear. In our conversation recently, he discussed some ways that the development and expression of courage can impact the culture. Here now is Michael Anthony. I think our nation is in the midst of a perfect storm, a convergence of political, moral, theological, financial, uh, racial issues that are unprecedented at such a widespread scale in our nation. So as a result, many people are fearful, and at the same time, Christians are being attacked. There's what I call in the book a call for courage. Reverse intolerance, where everybody wants to talk about tolerance these days and pushes for tolerance. Unless you're a person of faith, then we don't want to hear from you. We want you to sit down and shut up. And I think that we're getting our just desserts. I think we're just beginning to see the consequences of a society where God is shoved into a box. And people of faith take the bait and believe the lie that the world doesn't want to hear what we need to say. They do need to hear it more than ever, because we're seeing the moral meltdown of a society right before our very eyes because God has been removed and is being removed more and more from society. So A Call for Courage is a book to help people, to inspire them, and to motivate them to do what God calls us to do in His power, to stand up and to speak out. I would say that there are two basic things that are impacting most Christians today. Uh, A detachment and a sense of apathy, feeling there's nothing we can do. And then the other sense of fear, wanting to do something but feeling immobilized and not knowing what to do. And so on the one hand, the apathy, I think, 
what's crept into, and I'm a conservative evangelical. I want to make that really clear to the audience. I believe in the rapture, certainly believe in the return of Jesus Christ. It's an absolutely un- non-negotiable truth taught in the Scriptures. But I think many conservative evangelicals today are using the rapture and the return of Jesus as escape clauses for being salt and light right now. And so that's resulted in an unintentional apathy. Well, I can't change society. This is just going down the way Jesus said it was going to happen, so there's nothing we can do about it. Well, we're supposed to be faithful to Jesus, not because we may change society. We may or may not. We're supposed to be faithful to Jesus because Jesus is worthy of our faithfulness. And I think it's a, a great time in our nation for an awakening, a rediscovery for the average Christian to realize, to, to do some soul-searching. Why am I serving Jesus? Is it because I think I, by doing things I might change things, or because he's worthy regardless of the consequences? Very, very important to understand. So, so seeing these mindsets or these attitudes being expressed in this book, A Call to Courage, what do you offer as far as some solutions, as far as, as you mentioned, soul searching? Once mm-hmm. that soul is searched and a person gets before God, what do you see as some practical steps a person can take? I see that uh, this book, when, when they read A Call for Courage, they're going to be inspired because the way I wrote it was, this is a book that's, you know, people are not buying this book one at a time. It's not the kind of book that you just read by your fireplace, warmed up in a, in a comforter. It's the kind of book that people are buying, two, three, four. We've seen pictures on Facebook with 20 copies of this book that people are buying and giving out because it's a book to spark a movement. And our nation needs what I'm calling in the book a movement of courageous humility. And that's what's going to happen when people read the book. It's, each chapter is small enough for you, you to be able to read it in a relatively brief time. There are chapter summaries at the end to help make sure that you don't miss the major points with immediate practical application points that you can take. And the end result, when you're done with this book, just hearing the testimonies from other people, people are getting blown away because they're saying, boy, this book is actually showing me what to do. It's showing me how to lead my family. It's showing me the kind of changes that I need to make in my personal life, the kind of changes that need to happen in my church. And that's how the nation is going to be changed, one, one person, one family, one church at a time. So it's a manual. Alveda King, who wrote one of the endorsements, you know, um, Nisa, Dr. Sure, Martin Luther King sure. Jr., she called it a salt and light how-to manual on how to push back against the darkness, and that beautifully mm-hmm. describes it. Michael Anthony here on The Intersection. Find out more through the website couragematters.com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection, it's Corey Salkert. She has been involved in caring for hospice babies, and she shared about some of her experiences as she relates in the book, I Will Love You Forever, a true story about finding life, hope, and healing while caring for hospice babies. Here now is Corey Salkert. Well, I would say that God has been in the process of refining me for a number of years (laughs) to get to the point where death was not worst-case scenario and that I was enabled to run towards the danger rather than running as fast and far away from it as possible. So it has been a long process over a number of years of um, God just taking some of my worst fears and having me face them head on, deal with them, and then find out that doing that was was uh, something that I not only could survive but actually thrive in the midst of it. And so that was how we were set up to be able to take my hospice background. I am a registered nurse, have been for almost 30 years, and 
take that and then extend that to children um, who need a family because their parents were not able to stay. Mm. Tell me about the first baby whom you cared for. Well, her name was Emmeline, and um, she lived lived for 50 pretty amazing days mm. for a baby who wasn't expected to have any life at all. And we made sure that her days were were full of being held and being loved, uh, lots of music and outings to the beach and the bank and the bookmobile, have baby, have oxygen tank, will travel. And we cherished that child's life for the brief time that we had her and had no regrets when she died that we could have loved her any better. Mm. Then in uh, October of 2014, a year and a half, you know, after Emmeline had passed away, uh, we were brought to Charlie. And he was four months old at the time, and we adopted him a little over a year after that. And he was not anticipated to even live long enough to be adopted. And now that little boy is going to be four in June. Oh, my goodness. Uh, So, yes, he's, Mm. however, I have to just qualify that a little bit. He is, um, he's sick today. And when you are, have a trach and when you have the medical fragility that he has, something like that, having a cold um, could definitely take you out. And so we live day to day knowing that he could die at any time. And yet he's also absolutely thrived um, in our home and has kind of beaten those odds that uh, that his time was going to be really brief. And, and it is still brief, even if it's been four years, but that was so much longer than we had anticipated we were going to have with him. So mm. we don't take any of that for granted, and we're grateful for whatever time we have. What has God shown you with respect to his love for for these children as well as his presence with parents who are struggling with children who are ill? I believe that we have an opportunity to take God at his word. And when he says in the Psalms that he's close to the brokenhearted and he cannot ignore their cries, then I lay that out before him. And he knows better than I do that my heart is broken. I also have a a song by Sherry Easter that it says, Hear my heart, and it says, You know all the ways I need you. You know all the ways I'm weak. So I'll be quiet so you can hear my heart. And a lot of times that's how I pray because I, I don't know for sure what to pray. But I know that he takes my prayers, and it says that the Holy Spirit (laughs) interprets those and sends that on to the Father in a manner that is pleasing to him. So even though I might be faltering over my words and I don't know exactly what to say, I know that God hears my heart. Hmm. Would you say that that perhaps the, the fear and the uncertainty of the future is perhaps one of the the principal emotions that people in these situations face that you faced yourself? Yes. And so that is something where God has just worked on, Corey. You don't really have any control, even though you think that you've planned your day out and that if you didn't have this child with the unpredictable health concerns, 
that you somehow would know how your day was going to play out. And all of us know that we can go into a day and it can be upended in ways that we never anticipated. So our illusion of control is one that you come face to face with in dealing with these children. And there is a sense of, you know, faith is what pleases him. Corey Salkert here on The Intersection. The website address is safehavenford, the number four, babies.org. Well, we are near the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. At The Meeting House homepage, you'll find a link marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with the recent guests featured on the Intersection Podcast. You can also subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Through the Faith Radio website, you can get connected to the Faith Radio app through which you can access the Intersection podcast. Two blogs are accessible also. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. Through the Meeting House homepage, you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. There's also a link to video content, including conversation highlights from the recent NRB convention in Nashville. Again, the website address, meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me. This has been the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.